Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 19th of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. And we're also joined by Mark Anderson, reporting from the United States. Plus, we have a guest today. But uh, we are going to kick off with uh, a look at Ukrainian the, the war in Ukraine and in particular Ukrainian casualties. Uh, I did a little interview with TNT Radio on Friday night, which uh, raised some of the issues. And I wanted to get back into this subject, which I regard as very important uh, because, of course, people are fighting, dying and being wounded. Here's the BBC heads, headline, which appeared on Friday. Russia doesn't count its war dead, so we did. Um, a particularly offensive um, interactive graphic from the BBC. And as far as I can see, they're gloating at the Russian deaths. But of course, the BBC are silent on Ukrainian casualties in what is uh, NATO's proxy war. So why the silence? Well, let's have a little think about things. And uh, this is probably the first one to bring in the body bags count from the Falklands, Iraq, Afghanistan to Vietnam, when the boys arrive home in bags, the support for the war dies. So we can be fairly sure that at the moment the West is desperate to keep the true Ukrainian casualties out of the way because that could interfere with the conduct and the support for the war. And if I add a bit more in here, um, let's do this. Um, the US, UK, NATO and the EU cannot risk rebellion in Ukraine. Ukraine has got to fight their proxy war to the last Ukrainian. And therefore, the Ukrainian public must never understand the scale of slaughter of their own troops. Now, I wanted to bring evidence up on screen because I, uh, I was challenged, certainly on Friday night, about evidence. Well, of course, we're reliant on what is reported. I've taken a selection of those reports and let's work our way through and see what they have to tell us. So here's good old BBC, Ukrainian casualties, Kiev lo losing up to 200 troops a day, according to a Zelensky aide. Uh, but if we uh, speed this up a bit and label it. There's the 100, between 100 and 200 killed per day. Uh, we've got the fact that Ukraine is desperate for artillery to, quote, level up the playing field with the Russians. They're being outgunned by the Russians. And then we've got another report in this article that between 100 and, oh, sorry, 100 killed and 500 injured per day. And so it goes on. We've got a report here from the 1st of July, 2022. Um, there's any, any estimates of anywhere between 35 and a half thousand for, Ukraine, uh, for Russian deaths by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. And uh, if we bring in the next one here, this is the Ukrainians themselves. They're making a claim back in July 2022 of 40,000 Russian dead. Uh, we've got another one here by the um, Ukrainian Minister, Minister of Defense, Reznikov. He claims that the real Russian losses are 55,000, and that is the 21st of September 2022. Um, if we pop Newsweek on, Ukraine anger over von der Leyen's unverified 100,000 dead soldiers claim. And this, of course, is when she spoke out publicly saying that there were 100,000 dead Ukrainian. Uh, she called them officers at the time, uh, but it raised great consternation. And then suddenly that report disappeared. Back on the BBC, this is the 2nd of December 2022. Ukrainian war, Zelensky aid reveals up to 13,000 war dead. Uh, but of course, the interesting thing about this particular article is that we've got a statement of between 100 and 200 Ukrainian soldiers dying daily. And then we've got the US General Mark Milley saying that around 100,000 Russian and 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed since the start of the war. Uh, we're looking there at December 2022. Uh, if we move on, we've got BBC here in February this year. Russian soldier death rate highest since the first week of the war, uh, with a claim based on Ukrainian data showing 824 Russian soldiers dying per day in February. Uh, we've got the um, 
Ukrainian uh, Ministry of Defence uh, effectively saying they will never get tired of counting the dead bodies. 150,000 Russian occupiers eliminated. Does that mean dead and wounded? We don't know, but there's the statement. Uh, if we go to the Kiev Independent, the claim is that Russia lost five times more soldiers in Bakhmut than Ukraine. Uh, if we look at the Kiev Independent again here, uh, we've got um, Russian casualties on the Bakhmut front are assumed to be very high, but Ukraine is also taking heavy losses. NATO estimates that at least five Russian soldiers were killed for every Ukrainian loss. But then look at the key statement, and the quote is this. It's a pity that probably 90% of our losses are from artillery or tanks and aviation. This is a comment from a, a Ukrainian soldier. Um, and uh, what is significant about this is, of course, whoever has the mass of artillery produces the dead bodies on the other side. And the Russians clearly have the upper hand, as this Ukrainian soldier is saying. Uh, if we look at this report from Kiev Independent, this is June 2023, where the claim is that Russia is continuing to suffer losses. Um, uh, but at the end, it says, or the final paragraph on screen says, a Western official recently told British Sky News that as of June the 1st, Russia had suffered over 60,000 casualties during its assault on Bakhmut. And uh, that's a pretty uh, big figure. If we have a look at another report in June 2023, the 10th of June by the Kiev Independent, it's claiming that Russia has lost 214,660 troops in Ukraine. And uh, a Reuters report, 13th of uh, June, uh, says that Ukraine's counteroffensive not, has not been successful in many areas, um, but, and that the Russians were claiming that Ukrainian casualties were 10 times higher than Russia's own losses. So um, we go on to Associated Press here, and uh, according to them, both sides are suffering heavy casualties in this counteroffensive. Uh, one more, and Washington Post, both sides suffer heavy, heavy casualties, but there's a, a quote from Prigozhin, uh, who's saying that he recruited 50,000 convicts and apparently 10,000 of those are dead in Bakhmut. So if we um, do a little bit of a summary here, then we'll invite David to comment. But uh, this is the picture that we can put on screen. In June 2022, 100 Ukrainian killed and 500 injured per day. Uh, 1st of July, 35,000 Russians claimed dead and 23,000 Ukrainians. In the 27th of July, 40,000 Russian dead were claimed. In September 22, 55,000 Russian dead. In November 22, 100,000 Ukrainian troops killed. And that's the figure that came out from Ursula von der Leyen in her public announcement. And uh, we'll put at the bottom in December 22, uh, other reports of 100 to 200 Ukrainians killed per day plus the US General Milley talking about 100,000 Russian and 100,000 Ukrainian casualties from the start of the conflict. And if we move through into 23 uh, March, we're trying to say that Russia has lost five times more soldiers in Bakhmud. 15th of March, uh, five Russians lost for each Ukrainian, but 90% of the Ukrainian losses are, are admitted due to artillery. Uh, June 23, Russian casualties claimed by the West in Bakhmut to be 60,000. And uh, the 10th of June, we've got this report of 214 and a half, roughly, Russian losses with 890 recorded on a day. Um, June 13th of June this year, Ukrainian casualties uh, 10 times higher than Russia. That was the Russian claim. And the 18th of June, uh, we've got a, a claim there about 10,000 Russians being uh, killed in Bakhmud. So if we make some comment on this and we label it notes and assumptions, this is uh, the best analysis we can produce. Uh, Ukraine has been fighting with a significant artillery air force and long range weapon disadvantage. It's already had to effectively replace one army with tens of thousands of young semi-trained troops. They've just had a basic few weeks training before they're thrown into the front line. 
Ukraine has been forced to use a mishmash of Soviet and obsolete NATO armor and other weapons. Ukraine has been forced to attack defended Russian positions with no air cover. So let's think about this. Faced with a mismatch in military capabilities, it appears highly unlikely to me at least that Ukrainian casualties would be at parity with Russian casualties. It's not unreasonable to assume that Ukrainian losses will be somewhere in the order of two to three times the Russians because of the weapons and artillery mismatch. And therefore, if we take that 214,000 Russian loss figure, uh, twice equates to 429,000 casualties, or three to 643, of which one in five may be assumed killed. Um, So if we take the estimate of 40 or 55,000 Russian dead as correct, then we may also assume that two or three times that number have died on the Ukrainian side, which would bring us to 80 to 110,000, which strangely starts to tie in with the sort of the numbers that von der Leyen was mentioning. David, very, very rapid run through what is possibly happening, but critical, I think, that the Ukrainian casualties not being mentioned. This has been one of the, the most noticeable, noticeable things. Finding out about this has been almost impossible. If you go on the internet and you search, you get uh, article uh, after article on Russian casualties and almost complete silence on what's happening to the Ukrainian forces. Um, There have been some, as you said, some estimates. US Defence Intelligence Agency in April estimated up to 223,000 total Russian casualties, of which 43,000, up to 43,000 killed, 180,000 wounded. And their figures for the Ukrainians at that point were 131,000 total casualties, 17,500 killed, 113,000 wounded. So the Americans are trying to suggest that with a major imbalance in artillery uh, and aircraft, um, that uh, the result is that the, uh, the Russians are taking losses at roughly two to one of the Ukrainians. Um, now, the attacking side normally takes higher losses, and that's mostly been the Russians, but you, the point you make about the prevalence of casualties due to artillery and the huge acknowledged 5 to 1 imbalance in artillery firepower in favour of the Russians, that does not seem credible. Um, so we're, we're faced with uh, answers coming out of the Western um, uh, uh, capitals like Washington that, that that don't seem to have any credibility. We've got claims coming out of Russia that don't seem to have any credibility. And this is a difficulty of forming a, a, an intelligent view as to what the truth might be, because the truth will uh, determine the course of this war. Because if you're right about the figures here, Brian, um, they, the Ukrainians will have to, have to, be forced to uh, bring an end to the offensive, um, go on to a holding operation to conserve manpower, and um, either sensibly look for peace or simply look for a very long war of gradual grinding attrition, but on a smaller scale. It will affect what happens. If uh, what we've been told is correct um, from the sort of Western side, then, then it's different. You, know, you would have a Ukrainian offensive, the Russians would be running out of manpower, and the whole thing would be looking uh, quite unlike the picture we're seeing today. Okay, David, thank you for that. And I'm just going to comment. Uh, if we we ask what is what is Ukraine fighting? Uh, I believe Ukraine is actually fighting NATO, and of course, NATO has already buried its way into the heart of Ukraine via Victoria Newland's policies. Uh, not only on getting in amongst the whole infrastructure of Ukraine, but of course working with the Ukrainians to unleash this war on the Russians. More on that in coming news. Well, let's bring Mark Anderson on screen because, of course, if we start to talk about plans for global change and global cities, that is clearly something that's also being linked with the war in Ukraine. But Mark, what have you got to tell us about uh, the Pritzker Forum? What's interesting here is that I was looking into the Pritzker Forum as a routine follow-up news item for today's UKC News. Uh, As an extension of what I did on the Alternative View program, I did the more enlarged program on global cities and smart cities. 
And I determined here, Prisker Forum Global Cities, hey, there it is, September 20 through 22 this year in Chicago. And I think, oh, okay, they're a little bit delayed in getting back to this. And then I started looking at it more. Uh, let's go to the next slide. And uh, we see democracy in the life of cities, and it's a report. So then I opened that report. We can move on to the uh, next visual. And here's the democracy in the life of cities stemming from my routine perusal of what's going on with the Global Cities Forum. And I notice it's the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the main promoter of global cities in the U.S., and the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. And uh, by the time you read that report, then you find this, uh, we're going on, and we find toward a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, uh, linked with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, which has been in existence since 1972. It's one year older than the Trilateral Commission. And the German Marshall Fund has meetings that are not unlike Bilderberg, with uh, private and public sector getting together in very questionable ways. But um, so what we find out is that Ukraine is in the crosshairs of the globalist establishment like never before. And they are going to bring the full brunt of global power to completely rework the social and energy and political and economic structure of Ukraine. Ukraine is being completely engineered. And that's what we're finding out. Uh, for instance, here we have cities and CSOs are willing to act. This is part of um, the um, German Marshall Fund's plans and things like that. Uh, there's a program that the, the slides coming up will show that there's a program coming up in London this week that uh, actually moves forward on this. Um, uh, we're going a little too quick here on the slides, but uh, this is talking about um, the EU's mission for climate neutral and smart cities is a Green Deal flagship initiative that supports efforts in more than 100 European cities to become climate neutral by 2030 two decades ahead of the bloc's 2050 target uh, as both major emitters and centers of it, as both major emitters and centers of innovation cities have what it takes to lead on Europeans decarbonization Ukraine's ambition to build back green could greatly benefit from pursuing a new or, or excuse me from pursuing a similar approach and uh, this gets into um, a further explanation, local and civic efforts, next slide please, local and civic efforts are driving the emergence of a distributed energy architecture in Ukraine, while this new system is in its early days and far from formalized, with the right support, it could become a testing ground and model for Europe's energy transition. So Ukraine's being looked at as a model for that purpose. Um, and we'll go on from there. Um, much could be said here. I'll, I'll cut to the chase. Um, the middle paragraph of this, uh, well, starting here, the cost of Ukraine's reconstruction, they're already planning Ukraine's reconstruction, even as the war goes on, has grown to $411 billion, according to the World Bank's latest estimate. Future-oriented loans, grants, and investments in the country's recovery will turn the unprecedented spending into an opportunity to green an economy that had been one of Europe's most energy and carbon intensive, putting it on track for European Union integration and global climate goals. So uh, European Union integration of Ukraine is going hand in hand with making Ukraine's cities global cities, uh, with making them uh, build back green, uh, with major investments like likely that will come from BlackRock. That's not specified here, but I, I suspect that's true. Anyway, going to the middle paragraph in this slide, Ukraine will be able to join and compete in an EU economy fit for 55 only if cross-sectoral decarbonization goals that mirror the holistic approach of the EU's Green Deal guide, EU's Green Deal guide the recovery process. The Lugano Declaration on the Reconstruction of Ukraine recognizes this and commits to rebuilding an, um, in alignment with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement and the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So you can see what's happening here. This is pretty disturbing and pretty pretty dramatic. Let's look at the Lugano Declaration briefly uh, moving Mark, forward. If, 
Mark, if I may, just before you do that, just to come in very quickly, yeah, what, what an extraordinary coincidence that as we have Ukraine being devastated with this war and smashed to peace, this is a wonderful opportunity for these people to see that uh, they can take over the, the Ukrainian society and government and use it for a model country, a modern model nation state in this system. This is a, an amazing coincidence that it should have cropped up yeah. at the same time as the war. Yes, coincidence with quotes around it. Um, in my opinion, a quick opinion note, this is the real war on Ukraine, uh, where we're looking at the um, complete social engineering or re-engineering, again, of their economic and social and political order. And it's all being done before the shooting has even stopped. So it makes you wonder why the shooting even started. What really happened, right? The action is in the reaction, which is so common among these oligarchs that run the think tanks and work and interact with the big bankers and the whole uh, governance system that has, that is controlling the regular governments of the world. Now, um, as we move on in this slide, uh, these are all materials from my Global Cities research, as I mentioned. This slide is where I look in the corner. It says there's the Ukraine Recovery Conference, and that's happening in two days from now right there in London, UK. And I'm not sure of the exact location, but everything I'm talking about is going to be brainstormed at this conference this week. Uh, briefly, we'll touch on those Lugano principles um, in this next slide. Uh, some of this is quite tiresome, and we've heard it a million times before, but we need to report it. Partnership, that's number one. Number two, reform focus. Number three, transparency, accountability, and the rule of law. Yeah, the tyranny and the one world dictatorship is becoming more visible and transparent. I guess that makes it less uh, less unpleasant. Uh, number four, democratic participation. Uh-huh. Number five, multi-stakeholder engagement, more globalese, meaningless words. Uh, gender equality and inclusion, even more meaningless. And sustainability, what does that even mean? Um, so you have your typical buzzwords and, and buzz concepts, you might say, that are going into this. And here we go. This is where it's uh, more clear in the chain of information that I found last night. On June 21, 22, that's a couple of days from now, the UK jointly with Ukraine will host the International Ukraine Recovery Conference in London. And so um, I don't know if we could get somebody over there, if they'd let somebody from UK column in. I'm not sure we'd be real welcome. But um, I can, uh, we can just kind of move on through this relatively quickly. In this next slide, notice what it says. The your, your, excuse me, the Ukraine, it's, it's early here, guys. The Ukraine Recovery Conference is dedicated to Ukraine's transformation and was symbolically launched in London in 2017 as the Ukraine Reform Conference. Now, this is curious that this has been going on in between when the West through Victoria Newland overthrew the Russian leaning leader of Ukraine in 2014. Three years later, 2017, they're already doing these sorts of things well before the conflict that we're report reporting on now. And um, as part of the 2023 agenda, uh, it says here the conference will advance private sector participation in recovery by showcasing new and existing partnerships between international and Ukrainian businesses and the benefits uh, these bring to both parties. A focus on specific sectors such as tech, logistics, and transport corridors, green energy, natural resources, infrastructure, reconstruction, digital digitalization, agriculture, and food, health, and pharmaceuticals will enable Ukraine to highlight investment opportunities and encourage future partnerships and areas of cooperation, which is really another way of saying they're gonna open it up to the financial sharks of the world, uh, very most likely BlackRock, major banks, uh, major investors, probably Palantir, and many that are involved in Bilderberg. Um, and here we get into the specifics of the Ukraine Recovery Conference coming up in London in a couple of days. They are being somewhat open about it, and yet the press in, in the UK and the US probably will never even touch this, uh, and never even mention that this is happening. Uh, they're gonna deal with infrastructure, supporting, supporting Ukraine 
uh, rebuilding its damaged critical uh, infrastructure uh, is an immediate need, but also offers opportunities for partnerships to shape efforts to rebuild and enhance facilities through using innovative technology and green solutions. Uh, AI will no doubt be a big part of it. Reform and governance, reform and governance matters to help Ukraine meet the standards required for EU accession. So we see what the end game is here. And participants and level of representation, uh, the conference will be attended by high level international political representatives from all regions, multilateral organizations and international financial institutions. So that's what's gonna be happening here in London in a couple of days at this Ukraine Recovery Conference, moving on from there. Uh, again, this is very curious. Uh, as you look at that website, you see Ukraine reform conferences have been happening since 2017 in London, 2018 Copenhagen, 2019 Toronto, Canada, 2021 Vilnius, and 2022 Lugano. Uh, so Ukraine has been, uh, you might say, a political, social, economic uh, object of experiment for several years. Uh, under under the tutelage of the oligarchs and the internationalist establishment. And um, that is probably the bulk of the report. Uh, I believe that that's everything uh, of uh, major importance. And um, anyway, I'll just mention that Chatham House, this is, this is worth the honorable mention, Chatham House simultaneously starting tomorrow is having a program called Shaping the New Ukraine, Delivering Resilient Recovery. And um, it's going to be live streamed. They say that the in-person seats are all taken up. And Ukraine's recovery, listen to this, requires enormous human and financial resources and will impact every sphere of public life. Uh, Mark, so, thank you. Thank you very much yeah, for, they, for that update. Very useful and just fascinating to see all this machinery go on in the backdrop while the war is still going on. And as we've seen with the statistics, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians and Russians dying. David, um, have we got a stable fin um, financial economic backdrop for all of this planning for the, for the world utopia? Well, that's an excellent question. And we'll get to uh, the excellent question from, from Mark in extra time. He asked what uh, sustainability really means. We'll have a chat about that one later. Uh, on to economic matters. We reported last week that on the start of a house price decline in the United Kingdom, 3% year-on-year uh, decline in, uh, in house values last in the last 12 months. Um, we've got here some uh, further statistics. This is the monthly property transactions commentary from uh, the United Kingdom government, HM Revenue and Customs. Now, they're talking about the volume of transactions, how many house sales are actually going through. Non-adjusted estimate is that that is down 32% year on year to April. So that's plummeting. Now, that's a leading indicator. That gives, an indi that gives an indication as to where house prices are going to go in future. So there's more on this uh, being seen in the uh, in the mainstream press and in the financial press. Here we've got, um, this is Money uh, website, talking about soaring interest rates um, that have put the brakes on the housing market. Um, average house prices are dipping. Um, and this was unusual, first time in many years that it had fallen in June. So the house prices are on the slide. Uh, moving on to uh, the Financial Times, they're looking at where interest rates are going. Now, uh, the, the Bank of England made a prediction about how interest rates were going to plummet, and they duly didn't. They came down a little, but nothing uh, like uh, the expectation from the Bank of England. Uh, and the, as a result, the expectation as to where interest rates are going to be is that they're going to be higher, uh, expecting the Bank of England to be fighting inflation by putting up interest rates. Um, so the FT reports that the two-year fixed rate mortgage is now above 6%. Um, now, uh, what's that doing to the lending market in the UK? Well, we see here trading economics shows that Mortgage lending is, would you believe, minus a net 
minus 1.4 billion pounds. Right? The mortgage borrowers are repaying more than they are borrowing uh, by 1.4 billion um, in April alone. And if you look at this chart, you'll see that apart from one dip during the COVID craziness, this is the lowest level of mortgage borrowing on record in history in the United Kingdom. So um, certainly since that record began. So this is, this is very, very significant. The housing market is really hitting the buffers very hard. Uh, trading economics uh, reports here, uh, the period since the onset of COVID-19 has excluded net borrowing uh, of mortgage debt was at its lowest le level on record. Uh, looking slightly further afield from the United Kingdom, we go to the European Central Bank. Uh, this is what they're saying about uh, the money supply. And you see the money supply. This is the supply of credit, of course, because it's not money, it's credit, is uh, dropping very quickly. Uh, the, the M1, which is uh, basically cash and um, overnight demand deposits, that's now uh, falling at about 5% a year. Uh, M3, a broader, a broader measure of money, is still increasing, but at a very low rate. Um, that, sh that suggests that there's going to be huge uh, deflationary pressures on the economy. There's going to be major pressures on the banks and um, major pressures on the central banks to reverse course and start to print money again, because really that's the only trick they have. Um, and we'll finish here with the Telegraph. Uh, reporting that the Bank of England is urged to speed up its review of its forecast bungles. Transpires, no one's believing the bank anymore. Uh, confidence in the Bank of England is at a record low. And I thought I'd share this quote with you. Dame Andrea led some member of the Treasury Select Committee and former business secretary, so she should know, said the public's distress is entirely understandable as runaway inflation is so devastating for every single one of us. Now, of course, she wasn't saying anything about that when the government and the Bank of England together were, innate, were enacting the policies that caused the inflation, you know, all the money printing during COVID. She was silent then, but now she's got someone to blame it on, namely the bank. She's happy to do that. If only people would actually stand up and take responsibility for what they have done to this country, that would be a start. Yeah, David, thank you very much for that. And of course, uh, we're in the amazing situation where if it's money for the weapons in Ukraine, then those billions can appear at the drop of a hat. But uh, um, what we need is a stop button for the roundabout, I think. Well, let's move on and say a big thank you to everybody who's supporting the UK column. If you're not yet a signed up uh, member with us, with us, please consider doing that. And you get the benefits of all the UK column community part of the website. Of course, you can support us by purchasing in the shop. And uh, that's always great advertising for us if you do. And of course, everything that we're pushing out, we hope that you will share. Um, you can take information from any of these platforms and help spread it, uh, spread UK column information as far and wide as possible. Now, as always, we just like to do a little bit of internal advertising. So Tuesday, the 20th of June at one o'clock, we've got a UK column interview, uh, which is Debbie speaking to Charlotte Crichton for an update on matters to do with uh, jabs and uh, uh, the effects thereof. So recommend that uh, people tune into that one. On Thursday, we've got an interview, <coughs> excuse me, Debbie talking to Naomi Wolf about the Pfizer documents that were recently released by court order. I think this will be a particularly significant interview with more truth coming out. So tune in for that. And uh, we've also got this one Friday the 23rd. Uh, this is because um, UK Column team will be away on Friday. And uh, this is David, an interview with uh, Ben Rubin. Yes, Ben and I were discussing uh, all things relating to big data, uh, big pharma, and uh, the whole issue regarding the new life sciences and genomic research that uh, is propelling so many things forward in the medical sphere. Uh, there's a lot of areas uh, that uh, Debbie Evans has covered in detail uh, for some considerable time, so I hope she will enjoy this, and I hope the audience will too. Okay, well, the other one is an advert for Rally for uh, Peace and Freedom. That seems to be a particularly good subject to be uh, taking part in. This is at Holyrood, next to the Scottish Parliament. It's Saturday, 
24th of June at 1 p.m. Um, I will be speaking, David Scott will be speaking. We've got David Clues from Unity News Network, Peter Ford, former ambassador, Lauren Wilson from the Workers' Party, Colin Buchanan, Glasgow against NATO, Alex Pierce, the, the last Jacobite. And uh, what is it talking about? The recklessness of British policy on Ukraine, which is a threat to us all and world peace. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, we want to send out a strong message and reaffirm, reaffirm our democratic right to assembly and free speech. But the overarching aim is to end the terrible war in Ukraine. Now, we've had, as always, some lovely emails through. This one I thought was really wonderful. So I'm just going to praise it a little bit. But a gentleman and his wife were on the beach. They met an older couple. They got talking. It turned out the other couple were from Syria. And as the gentleman who sent the email said he had a friend from Palmyra, they started to talk about Syria. And uh, he said, well, I watch a really excellent news stream on this. And um, somebody who's reporting a lot, there was discussion, Vanessa Beely's name came up. And at that point, the other gentleman called his wife over and told her that uh, the, the first couple knew Vanessa uh, to which they said, oh, the UK column, we love them. Uh, tell, they tell the real news and that many people in and from Syria watch UK columns. So that was sent to us uh, as a lovely little bit of feedback. And of course, well done to Vanessa herself. And then I'd also like to just mention this one, uh, which came in from Paula, uh, who's based in Virginia. But uh, what she said was that she'd been noticing strange things going on in relation to the fires in Canada. And there was a link to this particular article from Medicine Hat News. Um, people can freeze the screen to read it. But essentially, this is talking about the US deploying high tech Pentagon um, equipment. So we're talking satellites and more to help Canada detect, suppress new wildfires. So wildfires have now become part of the Department of Defense. And I think this is a really incredible situation. And we'll have to look uh, deeper into that. Now, David, I think this brings us back to you and the subject of the definition of sex. Well, there was a, a debate in Westminster Hall uh, on the definition of sex, uh, as it is uh, recorded in the Equality Act. And uh, our guest today, Di Meakin, was looking closely at this debate. Di, welcome. David, hi, everyone. Um, so before we go into some of the specifics, what was your overall impression of this debate? Uh, it was a very well-informed uh, piece of conversation. There were uh, opinions from both sides of the, the, the fence, I guess, uh, in as much as there were uh, people who were supportive of the transgender side who were very vocal and uh, expressed theirs and others' opinions on it. Uh, and there were people who were supporting the uh, clarification requirement within uh, that piece of legislation. Uh, and they were very strongly opinionated on that also. And, and the, the underlying principle at stake here is if the definition cannot stand, then all of the protections for women um, and, uh, you know, enshrined in this legislation essentially are eroded. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, it certainly is. The, the idea of uh, bringing the... Bringing, if we have a situation where sex is not classified strictly as biological sex, then in actual fact, anyone who, i.e. Isla Bryson or uh, the likes of uh, his uh, other prisoners, I guess, uh, when they identify into the women's category, then what you have is a situation where you can't actually say no to these men because they identify as women. Therefore, they would be protected by law in the, the Equality Act 
and women's rights, in actual fact, are just blown to the wind. Yes. Uh, we've got a couple of extracts here from the from a debate. Uh, Janil uh, Rewardina, MP for uh, North East Hampshire, um, he said that uh, in 1597, Edward Coke, Attorney General, told Parliament that the law cannot do the impossible. The example he used was that the law cannot make a man into a woman. I believe he was right then and he is right now. Uh, Joanna Cherry, you'll be talking about her shortly. Uh, she was, said the protected characteristics of sexual orientation is contingent on the definition of sex as meaning biological sex. Gender identity is not relevant to sexual attraction. Uh, and Miriam Cates, um, MP for uh, Penniston and Stocks Bridge, uh, she said there's nothing more destabilising to society than to dismantle the legal, social and cultural guardrails that protect women and children by pretending that males become females and vice versa and allowing that to creep into our law. Now, by way of, in part, light relief, we've got a, a, a video here. This is uh, Kirsty Blackman, MP. Um, SMP MP from Aberdeen uh, speaking within this debate I would encourage everyone to look at Joanna Cherry behind her and watch her reaction um, We've talked about biological sex a number of times not one person has been able to explain what biological sex was the member over there gave a good stab at it talking about XX and XY chromosomes I have no idea what my chromosomes are. I have an assumption that they are probably XY, but I don't know. I've not got a clue what my, my chromosomes are. I've got a fair idea of what my genitals look like and how that compares to what other people's genitals look like. But if we're talking about biological sex and we are requiring that to be the definition, there needs to be an actual definition mm -hmm. that everybody in this room can agree with. Um, and it is not the case that anybody has been able to provide a definition um, on this. Poor Joanna Cherry having to listen to that. So this is this is what the, the extreme neo-Marxist left are trying to do. They're trying to play around with with making the uh, making exceptions destroy definitions so that you can't know anything. If you can't know anything, then everything's permitted. There are no boundaries and uh, everything goes. Um, just before we move on to another clip, Di, do you have any comments on that one? Uh, yes, I, I would ask the question of how she on earth managed to deliver two children if she has XY chromosomes. <laughs> That's an excellent question. Now, um, I, same, same speech later on in the speech uh, and another reaction from Joanna Cherry. This one more serious and, and a lot of people have been attacking Joanna Cherry over this reaction. I think unfairly. Uh, we'll see what you think, Di. Um, we'll run the video and then perhaps you could comment this change being made. They said, what hope is left? Should I just kill myself now and be done with it? They will not rest until trans people are excluded from public life. Di, um, uh, what do you make of that? Uh, I found the introduction of such subjects into that debate outrageous and in actual fact the statement from the sex matters organization with regard to that uh, was raising suicide threats as a response to legitimate debate about legislation is neither respectful nor responsible now it really just that that kind of comment really does buy into the emotional blackmail situation uh, in which some parents find themselves where they're asked if they would rather have uh, a transgender daughter or a dead son. Now, it's, it, it's utter emotional blackmail and uh, outrageous should not be introduced into these kind of conversations where it's manipulation and nothing more. Indeed. Thank you very much for that, Di. We'll be back to you uh, shortly. Um, uh, Brian. Watching these people, what was in my head is that this whole agenda, of course, has now been driven deep into society in Ukraine. And the average person in Ukraine, no idea what is coming from the West, but the complete destruction of all their values, all their belief systems. And uh, we're watching it unfold here. 
And of course, I can imagine that many Ukrainians look at UK and think it's a bastion of sensibility and uh, justice and democracy, but we're demonstrating something completely different. Let's move on to a, another highly controversial subject, which is abortion. And uh, many people uh, in the UK column audience are engaging with us talking about this. Um, but take us through the segment, David, and uh, we're going to stay on subject with this because it seems to us to be such an important one. Uh, yes, yeah, so we start here. The the one uh, aspect of equal rights that never seems to get any traction in our parliaments in the West is uh, equal rights for babies in the womb. But it is getting attraction on the street, and more and more people are are seeing this as um, as the equivalent to the fight against slavery, and as a as a really important matter to be campaigning on. Uh, the Christian Institute um, have reported figures that. The rest of the Scottish media don't seem to have reported very prominently um, that the abortion figures in Scotland have gone up hugely by 19% in 2022. So we're, we're now killing uh, 16,596 uh, little uh, Scottish babies every year. So that's well over a quarter. Um, this, the previous figure was more than 25%. So we're, um, you know, we're heading towards 30% of all babies conceived. Um, and uh, the number aborted due to Down syndrome was also increased, with Downs um, as a category, a category being essentially eliminated um, by what you might call a eugenics practice. Uh, also in the press this uh, week, we've had the case of... Um, uh, the woman who's been sent to jail for uh, for aborting her 34 to 36 week old uh, baby by lying to obtain the abortion pills. Uh, so here we see the Shropshire Star. Uh, the MP wants the law tightened after this jail sentence. Uh, Daniel uh, 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 Kawazinski, Conservative MP for Shrewsbury, uh, said he was horrified about the case. They said the 44 year old mother was was jailed by a judge in Stoke and Trent after she lied to obtain termination pills, which she used to abort her baby between 32 and 34 weeks pregnant. Um, speaking on BBC Midlands, uh, he said, as a Roman Catholic, I've always voted for reducing the level uh, for abortion. So I'm horrified that a child of eight months who could have been born prematurely and survived has died in this way. I think it's very serious. I think, I think very serious questions need to be asked as to how these pills were sent through the post uh, and um, to allow this sort of situation to occur, indeed. Um, now there are many, uh, there are many contradictions and and inconsistencies with this uh, in this subject area. Here we've got uh, one from Ireland. So the Irish Times reporting. Um, uh, Leo Varadkar says he would like to see fewer abortions in Ireland. So there are about 8,000 abortions happening in Ireland. They've only just uh, made, made abortion legal. So about half the, half the number that's happening in Scotland at the moment. Um, but he said he was happy to have led a government that repealed the amendment that prevented abortion. Um, so he, 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 he's happy that he's passed a law to allow abortion, but he's not happy at the number of abortions, which are only going to go up. So... Where is the logic? Where is the reason in that man's thinking? Um, he's appalled by what he's done, but he's happy that he did it. I, I don't understand how that is a, is a position that he can support in his own head. Um, and then we come to Scotland again. Um, safe access zones, a private member's bill has been um, given cross-party support, which means it's almost certain to go through, uh, to form safe access zones around abortion clinics. So we, here we see Humza uh, welcoming this, um, this innovation. Um, BBC reported it. They said the buffer zone bill uh, is almost certain to go through. Uh, it's aiming to create a 150 metre safe, quote, safe access zone around facilities which carry out abortions and other health services. Um, uh, so, um, here's the thing. I, I, I find this deeply offensive. You know, they're going to go and take these mostly little little Roman Catholic ladies, Scots and Irish Roman Catholic ladies who are who are standing quietly outside the abortion clinics uh, holding one or two signs and they're, and they're going to lock them up, right? And, and here you see um, the people who put this bill through. 
uh, laughing and joking and giggling about uh, about the whole thing. Now, remember, we're we're killing almost 30% of our population via abortion. The figures are going up and up. We're killing 16,000 little Scots a year. And look at them grinning. I, I, I find it appalling. And also, the use of the term safe access zones for something that's only going to result in death seems to be mocking what they're doing. They're not, they're not just doing it, they're mocking the people they're killing. Um, and the only the only similarity, the similar thing I could I could think of, was uh, the, uh, the the phrase that uh, uh, work will make you free, um, that was above the concentration camp gates. This level of mockery is 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 deeply disturbing. Um, I know some people won't agree with me, but I I find that uh, quite. Um, uh, Quite, quite an impossible position to be giggling and laughing about this subject. David, I, I think I'll just come in there and say I believe that uh, what's being proposed, what we're going to see proposed very, very shortly, is that the abortion can take place up until the time the baby is literally in the birth canal. So this this go, is going yet another stage, and this, of course, is the way it always is. And I find this this whole thing unfolding to be fascinating because I come from a, a generation where the pill was sold as the solution to all unwanted pregnancies. But now we're going to come into a world where we're not even sure who is the man, who is the woman. Um, and so who has the responsibility for creating the baby in the first place? There is something deeply sinister, deeply evil at work in uh, producing the policies that we're seeing unfold in the UK and worldwide. Where does that take us? It takes us back to Di. Uh, Di's been very busy this week. Uh, another of the events that she went to was organised with Scottish Union for Education. Um, and that was to look at transgender ideology in Scottish schools. A paper was presented by the very excellent Dr Jenny Cunningham, um, a veteran of uh, Notre Dame Person campaign, amongst other uh, victorious campaigns. Um, so, Di, just before we, we have a little clip of Stuart Waiton speaking at this, but uh, could you give us your overall impression of the event? Is that most people have no idea how deeply the indoctrination in our education system is. I, when there was discussion on uh, if you were to remove your child from the sex education curriculum and any other education uh, sections uh, within their yearly programme of education, the children would, in actual fact, only probably end up with two subjects because it's embedded in almost every subject that they learn in. It's shocking. Yeah, so th this next clip is from Stuart Waiton, a friend of UK Column and founder of the Scottish Union for Education, uh, speaking at that event. Adults and teachers need to stop affirming children and to start teaching them. They need to stop obsessing over their identity and start to develop their character. And the Scottish Union for Education needs an army of old men and old women. To make this happen. Then we will have a chance of stopping the transgender madness. Uh, so the uh, paper that was presented, uh, a, a, a detailed and very thoughtful paper, we've got a few uh, slides here just to uh, show the ground that was covered. Um, so as you see here, it's called Transgender Ideology in Scottish Schools. Um, and uh, there were m nine main points um, highlighted, as you see in that slide. Is there any that, in particular, Di, that you would like to, uh, to uh, bring to the fore? Yeah, I think that uh, probably the one of these that, that I find most disturbing is that I, where kids and their sex education, I know it's not called sex education any longer, but 
where all that subject matter is concerned. Now, our our schools are farming that teaching out to outside agencies. Now, that includes LGBT Youth Scotland. Now, they are they have been embroiled in sex. Uh, all manner of bad stuff, allegations and investigations for a very long time. And they feel that it's appropriate to bring organisations such as this into our schools to teach our children. Now, these people have got no background in education whatsoever. They have no understanding of uh, age-appropriate material and so uh, you have kids that are coming home having been, been given homework to ask their dads about their erections and ejaculations. A child is sent home to ask these things of their father. And, and this, this illustrates the point well. I mean, the, the, the fact that the, the former head of this organisation was, in fact, Scotland's most infamous paedophile, um, it, notwithstanding, the the organisation as a whole is look, is it, is made up of activists, right? This is um, queer theory activists looking to change society, and they're being invited into schools and asked to do this to our children. And it seems at the moment that very very few, and no one in the education establishment, actually and appreciates the implications of what they're doing. Uh, more on this in extra time. Di, thank you very much. Okay, um, David, thank you very much for that. Well, we're going to end uh, by moving on to Mark and uh, uh, let's uh, let's bring you on the screen. I think uh, it's back on the subject of the World, World Health Organization. Yes, this is a brief update. I signed up Here's a creative idea. I, I signed up on the mailing list of the WHO, everybody's favorite pastime, right? And they started sending me press releases. So I'm going to be contacting WHO media people with some pointed questions I've come up with. And the WHO pandemic treaty researcher, James Roguski of LA as well. He's made a lot of great reports and asks a lot of very pertinent questions. This is just some basics that, that I started getting from the WHO once I signed up. Countries set out way forward for continued negotiations on global uh, agreement on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response. They're, they're using the word agreement. They're avoiding that word treaty. This is dated the 17th of June, very recently, moving on from there. Uh, countries of the World Health Organization have moved forward in their negotiations on a global accord. Now it's an accord on pandemic prevention, et cetera with a view to presenting a draft accord to the World Health Assembly. Sure enough, they're staying on track. They're saying that'll be May of 2024, a little less than a year from now. Ending yesterday, discussions on the draft pandemic accord took place during the five-day resume session of the fifth meeting of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Body. That's the treaty negotiating uh, panel, which includes WHO's 194 member countries, et cetera, et cetera. We can move on from there. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, uh, ending yesterday, uh, take, keeping in mind the date of the press release, uh, discussions on the draft pandemic accord took place. Oh, wait, uh, discussions, let's, let's go to the bottom. The drafting group discussed Chapter 2, addressing Articles 9, Research and Development, uh, 10, Liability Risk Management, 11, Co-Development and Transfer of Technology and Know-How, 12, Access and Benefit Sharing, 13, Supply Chain and Logistics, and 14 regulatory strengthening. That gives you some of the things that they're covering. And going from there, I think we have one more. The meeting then agreed to continue consideration of several of these articles through informal meetings of the drafting group as a pilot informal meetings on Article 9 research and development of the Bureau's texts were, were held twice on the sidelines of the drafting group meeting. The intergovernmental negotiating negotiating body, the INB agreed to a series of intersessional informal meetings for, for the drafting group participants in, in advance of the sixth meeting of the INB, um, Articles 9, 12, and 13 there um, along the lines that I mentioned. 
The sixth meeting of the INB will be held in July from the 17th till the 21st. So there's an announcement there. And the drafting group will be invited to continue its work with consideration of the Bureau's text. The Bureau's text is the current evolving treaty that they're calling an accord um, and so on and so forth. And the last thing I'll mention, it was noted that a joint plenary session of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Body and the Working Group on the amendments to the international health regulations, which run in parallel with the developing treaty, that'll be held on the afternoon of the 21st of July and the morning of the 24th of July. So this just gives you an idea a little bit of what they're talking about and when they're doing it, uh, just to keep uh, our viewers on track uh, so they know how to get involved at whatever, whatever level they can to make their views known on this uh, WHO treaty uh, process and the international health regulations. So there you go, Brian. Uh, Mark, thank you very much. And am I right, Mark, in saying, and of course, all of this is is set in the form that countries have to opt out of it. It's a rolling machine. You're caught up in it unless you opt out. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the general understanding is if, if you don't make a complaint, you, you, you're assumed to be consenting to it. So if you don't say anything, they assume you support it. Um, there's There's lots of bells and whistles to this thing. But the main thing is that they want to have one body calling most of the shots for uh, informed consent and health choice, including so-called vaccine choice, rather than nations being able to opt out or subunits like states or counties within nations being, being able to opt out. That way, the next big pandemic that they declare, which could be the bird flu, they can say, look, we've got this accord, we've got the international health regulations, uh, the WHO runs most of the show, and so individual nations cannot opt out at all, or at least not as much as they used to during during the initial COVID scare. So that's what they're going for, and that's why we need to stay informed on a steady basis. Okay, excellent, Mark. Thank you very much for that. Well, we're at the end of the news, but uh, David, you've got a particularly interesting little image that uh, you wanted to share with us. Well, this comes from uh, the mixed messages that were sent by the Scottish Parliament uh, to essentially the world of law enforcement because Nicola Sturgeon was arrested uh, and questioned for seven hours, released without charge, but questioned for seven hours by Police Scotland over the missing £666,000 in the SNP, or rather not in the SNP coffers. Um, and this is going to be as part of an ongoing investigation. We don't know how that's going to go yet. How did the... Scottish Parliament respond, but well, they sent her flowers because it was it was traumatic. It was very upsetting for her. So what we have here is a cartoon of uh, a Police Scotland WPC um, uh, reading the rights to a uh, broken-nosed, knuckle-dragging um, thug, but simultaneously giving giving him a bunch of flowers because you know uh, it might be upsetting for him. So I thought that was very good. David, and uh, David, we're going to finish you in a little. David, I'm sure the one Sorry. on the right actually is a woman because I think it, it's it's pregnant, isn't it? I think you're confused over this image. No, no, no. Trust me, I, I come from Lanarkshire. That's a bloke. <laughs> now, um, uh, and and finally, uh, we, we have a song. Now, we've, we've featured uh, Dominic Frisbee's songs. In fact, this very song, uh, once or twice, or maybe even more often, on the column before. But this was an extra verse he wrote to his song, Maybe just for a very special Scottish politician. They said she was formidable, a lady to admire, the Scottish Margaret Thatcher. Full of balls and full of fire. All those English tyrants, she would hold them to account. She'd have another referendum with loads and loads of recounts. <laughs> she's just so brave, she's just so strong, such a success. <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> maybe Nicola Sturgeon's really burglar bill. <laughs> Socialist of the old school with her hands in the till. <laughs> Power crazed, praised and praised. She behaved like she was a genius. I cannot wait for her cellmate to be some bird with a penis. <laughs>
Well, there you have it. I hope that brought a smile to your faces at the end of what is uh, very often now a very serious UK column news. But of course, these uh, these are the events unfolding around us. We'll leave it there. David Scott and uh, Mark and Di, thank you very much for joining us. We will be back for extra time in a few moments. But I'm going to say a very, very big thank you to our audience, all of the wonderful emails, gifts that are sent in to us, books, papers, research. It's really tremendous to see our worldwide audience engaging with the UK column. So we're going to say thank you very much. Um, for our supporters, um, please uh, make sure you join Extra Time on Wednesday because we'll be doing a second part to where we're going with UK column and our new our new home and studio. So we'll be back in a few moments for extra time. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye.